I count cows following me as harassment. I hated it. But <laughs> um, I did climb up to the roof of my friend's barn when they all followed me because I'm, I'm a ginger and I look very different. And apparently cows are extremely curious. So they saw this orange blob and they were like, neat friend. And I was like, oh, no, not your friend. And climbed to the roof of a barn and shrieked for help. Yeah, I, I know so that surprising. It's mirrored and like cats and dogs, and I was gonna say to discredit my own fear, <laughs> I'm not at all <laughs> afraid of large cats and large dogs. I actually trained tigers for a few years. Hello and welcome to Talk Agnomy, the podcast dedicated to improving ag literacy around the globe. I'm your host, Brandon Black, and in today's episode, we're joined by another podcast host by the name of Amy, and she's going to talk to us all about her interest in guerrilla gardening and just generally other curiosities she has about the agriculture industry. She's also got a distinct fear of livestock for some reason, but we'll get into that later. This conversation kind of just started off with no introduction, so I'm kind of kind of just going to drop you guys right in the middle of the conversation. Um, everything that came before it isn't super important, so I'm just going to kind of put you where the interesting stuff started to kind of come out. So I hope you all enjoy and hope you stay till the end and check it out. I know it's a bit of a longer one, but it's a really fun conversation, so go check Amy out and show all of her support uh, on all of her great stuff, and I'll put all the links down in the description. And yeah, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. I did. I listened to, um, oh gosh, what was it called? Um, it was the one where you had your pal talking about... Um automation and robots oh yeah yeah, yeah. patrick <laughs> yeah yeah that's I guess that's where i thought your name was patrick sorry <laughs> um then that <laughs> yep, was that no was the worries. episode i listened to <laughs> it was really quite interesting gotcha. i did not realize that there were <laughs> machines that were quite that um like i guess articulated is the word i'm looking for capable of so much like delicate mm -hmm. task i knew about the tree shakers but yeah. i figured they were all kind of in the same bucket of like well it will get your crops <laughs> but like you know you might want to stand clear um <laughs> right so i definitely <laughs> learned quite a bit from it um and i'm i'm fascinated honestly at whatever you throw at me because this is something i, I don't know much about <laughs> um agriculture <laughs> like where everything comes from how it's made what makes that easier to do harder to do all that stuff um so i guess i have all of the questions <laughs> and i'm willing to be <laughs> pointed in the general vicinity where i should be asking them <laughs> awesome well that's that's you know that's the perfect mentality to have going into an episode you know we're all about answering questions and perfect. you know making sure that you get all your questions answered and you know all that there's really no uh, wrong direction for the for the conversation to go and there's no sure. stupid uh, there's no such thing as a stupid question so awesome uh, i'll have plenty then <laughs> <laughs> awesome well yeah that was i mean that was kind of the main mentality of, of the conversation that you listened to was you know sure. ask any question you want and that's kind of where the the foundation for the whole uh which star wars uh, droid makes the best farming robot <laughs> right <came> from. exactly <laughs> that's an so, excellent question uh, too especially given the whole water farming thing i was curious of the implications but um anyway yeah go ahead <laughs> <laughs> yeah no and that's that sparked a, a lot of conversations i've, I've had uh, i actually had an entire episode dedicated to star wars and agriculture just because of that one question so <laughs> spectacular good yeah. <laughs> whole spin-off so. series <laughs> <laughs> yeah so and and you know i've done previous episodes where i talk about agriculture and how it ties into movies and video games and so really anything is on the table for the question because i'm i'm trying to, to prove the claim that everything relates to agriculture in some way shape or form you know i believe that 
Um, okay, I guess I have a question about you. So tell me about your history with agriculture, why you're doing this podcast, that whole shtick. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I am uh, actually I'm, I'm going to turn 21 in three months. So I'm uh, a college oh, happy student. Happy early you know. birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so I was born and raised in a small town in central California called Tulare. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of us. I actually have for very weird reasons, but continue. <laughs> okay, well, I'll uh, inquire about that in a minute. But um, yeah, so I, I, I was born and raised in Tulare. And so okay. um, in Tulare, we, we, you know, we kind of call it cow town. You know, we're all about mm-hmm. uh, dairies and, you know, and uh, most most of the agriculture in Tulare is based around the dairy industry. You know, we have sure. uh, silage cornfields and there's there's actually a sudden rise in, in tree, um, you know, in, in tree fruit and tree nuts growing in Tulare. So we have pistachio sure. almond, walnut trees. Um, and all that kinds of cotton is kind of popular. So we're fairly diversified in, in our agriculture in Tulare, but mostly uh, dairy is kind of our staple. And so I grew up, you know, around agriculture my entire life, but it was never really something I was super interested in. Sure. And it was always kind of something that like my family did and that, you know, I was I was generally connected to, but it wasn't something that I was super passionate about particularly. Um, mm-hmm. I was more interested in uh, mechanics, you know, engineering, you know, inventing that kind of stuff. I was, I, I was, droids, a, a, sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was a science nerd growing up. And as you can see, not much has changed. Um, I, <laughs> you know, I, I was very passionate about, you know, mechanics and engineering. I was determined to be Iron Man. You know, that was like my, my, my goal in life was to, uh, <laughs> he's got to get the buku bucks and then it's all, it's all <laughs> downhill from there. Right. <laughs> exactly. And, and so, yeah, that was kind of the inspiration. And so, uh, from there I, I studied, you know, uh, mechanical engineering, um, and I went back and forth between that and kind of like a zoology-based career for most of my early childhood. So uh, when I was in fifth grade, so I was about 10 years old, I decided I want to be a zoologist, which I'm not sure why I knew what that was when I was 10 years old. But you um, know, that is I... not uncommon. <laughs> um, both my housemate and I wanted to be marine biologists when we were five, but it was a tie between that and zoologist. And I can't huh. tell you how many people I've talked to that said the exact same thing, <laughs> like zoologist versus marine biologist. Precisely. And I wonder if huh. there was like a children's book series or something that I'm just you not know, remembering. But there could have been. <laughs> <laughs> there must have been a trend, right? Like that's yeah. surely no, that's, that's really specific. <laughs> right. And so that that's that's crazy. There must have been something, you know, in, in our childhood that just kind of just brought that to our attention. Must um, have. But yeah, I, I don't know. So like I, because I, I found my love for animals through my sister because she was a huge, sure. you know, animal fanatic. She, you know, she researched all kinds of stuff about animals. She actually trains horses for a living. That's that, that's like her long-term career now. That and is so, bonkers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. That is super and so, cool. Good for her. Yeah. And so she actually studied, um, you know, horse psychology. You know, she, she studied like equine behavior and like all this like, you know, super complicated stuff. And she spent like years, you know, while, while she was in high school and her early years in college studying horse psychology and like the behavior and history between like the equine species and, and humans, and, like all this kind of stuff. So she knows all of it. I mean, like she's, you know, a horse expert among horse experts. And so is that like a veterinary study then like the psychology and behavioral or is mm-hmm. that like its own unique? OK, cool. Interesting. So yeah. So she was actually studying to be a vet and then she decided oh. she just wanted to specialize in horses. And so she almost became an equine vet. But she was much more interested in how the horses behaved rather than how their bodies worked. Sure. And so, um, which she's interested in that as well. Because, you know, she's, like I said, she's she's all the related, reason I yeah. was so, yeah, yeah, I was so interested in biology <laughs> and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so she went into that and that's, you know, that was her main career. But she's, you know, I grew up learning how to do everything because of her. She basically, because she's five years older than me. So she basically raised me. Um, Fantastic. And so... She actually taught me like how to read, so I was reading around like the age of like three or four, which I very recently found out is not normal. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, big sis got you uh, <laughs> up and at it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was like, I was like reading to like my, my kindergarten class and they all, I, I blew all of their minds, which I didn't know why at the time. Um, now I know that it's, it's not normal for a three-year-old to be able to read, but um <laughs> I, I have her to thank for that. So anyway, so that was kind of like my, my early childhood was like, you know, getting involved in like animals and like kind of like engineering, you know, inventing kind of stuff too. Um, and then around like my freshman year of high school, I was really into that that inventing thing. I started studying chemistry and chemical engineering and all this kind of stuff. Got really into the science of it. Um, I, I was determined to, to get involved in prosthetics, like all this stuff sounded really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I my parents uh, were both involved in a in a high school uh, leadership program called FFA. I'm not sure if you're familiar. I'm not. No. What is that? Okay. So FFA is uh, short for Future Farmers of America. And so okay. it's it's a youth leadership organization, mostly for high school students, although uh, recently we've expanded to seventh and eighth graders as well. Okay, and cool. basically the premise behind it is to teach uh, young kids, you know, leadership skills like public speaking, job interview, networking, um, you know, resume building kind of stuff, just general like sure. team leading, problem solving, just, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's founded in agriculture. So, so we learned, uh, all of those skills in, you know, in agricultural context. We even learned like sure. some of our basic, um, you know, stuff like, like we, like we had a, we had an ag biology class. So we learned about biology, but through ag, you know, terms. And we learned right. about like, you know, math and economics through ag terms. And so a lot of our basic classes were taught in an agricultural context because they believed that it gave more of a practical use to the information we were learning and it wasn't just conceptual. That's nice. And, that's actually yeah. quite, that's really clever. Right. And so I, that was kind of my first exposure to agriculture um, as like a, a, as a lifestyle, as an industry, you know, cause sure. I grew up always just like seeing like my neighbors and like, you know, my family friends that had dairies and I was kind of like, oh yeah, they're dairymen. Like that's, you know, that's just what they do. <laughs> but like, right. this was my first exposure with like, you know, how, how large agriculture is and how, and how many different things it really touches. And so mm-hmm. I got really, really into it. I mean, like I, cause I, I raised uh, beef cattle throughout high school, uh, just like sure. my dad did and just like his dad did. And so I was kind of a, you know, a third generation beef guy. Um, sure. <laughs> and so, term? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that is an official, uh, official term. Um, but I was, I was very involved in that kind of, you know, aspect of it. And similar to my, to my sister, I was really involved in animal behavior. You know, I, I studied, um, like the behavior of, of, of cattle and, you know, as, as opposed to horses, I, I was more interested in the cattle side of things. And I actually taught, um, you know, younger, you know, kids who were younger than me about, you know, the cattle and how they behaved and all that kind of stuff. And as I got older and got into high school more and more, um, I was I started teaching the other kids how to handle their animals and how to properly care for them. So that way, for one, they can have a you know a good relationship with their animal and they won't get hurt. And for two, their animal sure. is healthy and happy and all that kind of stuff. And so, right. as I got into that, my teachers started to notice how you know for one how much I was learning about agriculture and for two how much of a positive influence I was on the younger kids. Uh-huh. And they approached me and said, "Hey, you should really study to be an ag teacher. You'd be a phenomenal ag teacher." Oh, and awesome! Is that the I, path you're taking? That is. So I'm That's I'm going so to cool. yeah I'm going to college to be an ag teacher, and um, that is spectacular. Good for <laughs> yeah, you. So, you really found your calling. Yeah, thank you. I I really did, and that was kind of like the first time that I I started to notice that like something I did actually felt like it meant something. It wasn't just me you know right. talking to my wall about machines. It was something like <laughs> right. you know that there was actually like I could actually I could actually see the progress of my skills. You know. Sure. And so I was like at that point because like when I was a freshman, you know, I was shy and scared. And I didn't like talking to people. Um, but I saw these. So in, in FFA, we had different levels of, of the officer rank. And so sure. um, officers are like like the leaders of like the local groups. And so 
um there's like the chapter officer which is like the local level it's like of your school and then there's like the sectional officer then the regional officer and then the uh, state officer and then the national officers mm-hmm. so i saw the state officers for the first time like i went to our state conven- uh, our state convention and i saw the state officers on the stage like giving speeches and they were talking about how they like were working with kids all around the state and how they're like doing all this great stuff and they're teaching kids about agriculture and I was like, that, that is exactly what I want to do with my life. Oh, and awesome. I worked towards that for most of high school. And I realized like, okay, what, what makes the officers so admirable? So, okay. So they're great speakers. They're sure. great leaders. They're problem solvers. Uh, people like being around them. And so I worked on those skills, like throughout high school, I, I worked really hard on those skills. I worked on my leadership. I worked on my public speaking. I really forced myself out of my comfort zone, which to be fair, was also with the help of my teachers because they always forced me out of my comfort zone. Of course. Um, <laughs> and I was I was really encouraged to go like every time I walked into a room, I made a new friend. You know, I was I was super adamant about making Very myself uh, get up and talk in front of people a lot because that was something I, that terrified me. Um, you know, I was, I was forcing myself to talk on issues that I was very scared to talk about because I was worried I didn't know enough about them. And so I would just sure. do research for like months at a time. <laughs> and um, like I actually competed in a public speaking team called Extemporaneous. I do uh, know where that. I was, yeah, I was, I was actually involved in, you know, speaking about agricultural issues. You know, I spent three months of doing research and then I would get involved into oh the gosh. contest. And yeah, so I have like, you know, five binders full of research oh on, on research. <laughs> I go into the contest and the contest is, is cutthroat. It's brutal. I mean, like yeah. you walk in, you know, with your five binders full of research, that's all you're allowed to have. Uh-huh. And there's 20 cards laid out on a table. You don't know what any of them say. You get mm-hmm. to pick up three of them. Pick a topic from those three because each each of the cards has a topic on it, and the topic is usually phrased in the question. It's usually a super vague question. You pick a topic from those three, and then you have 30 minutes to write a speech on it. And <laughs> so I learned how to think on my feet because of that. You know, that taught yeah, me to think very quickly. <laughs> and so I had to deliver, you know, four to six minute speech and speeches in front of a panel of judges on issues that they are experts in and I was definitely not. Right. And then they had five minutes to ask me questions about anything I said in the speech. And so Ooh, so you couldn't get away scot free by going, Oh no, no. I guess we're out of time, guys. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you had to be like on your toes all the time. And so that was that was probably what you know what was the best thing for me though, was it really taught me how to think on my feet how to you know work and problem solve and you know kind of make sure i know my stuff or else i'm not gonna be able to speak on it and so yeah kind of all of those things combined plus my teachers you know influencing me quite a bit and, t- and teaching me about how to be a good you know ag teacher and all that and how to be a good mentor how to be a good leader um led to me eventually you know graduating and studying ag, ag- you know ag-, ag education in college and so um yeah so now and i coach other teams. college i go to fresno state fresno state excellent They've got a good mm-hmm. ag program there, then I assume. Very, very good. Oh, that's exciting! Congratulations, <laughs> that's really, really exciting. Thank you must you. be in your graduation there too, then, yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, or I'm near, uh, nearing to it. Is that a scary topic? Sorry, <laughs> I used to be an, <laughs> an LSAT teacher, and I talked to a lot of um, just about to graduate folks. And I know that can be nerve wracking. So sorry if I if I brought up <laughs> no, a, you're, a tough spot. <laughs> you're fine. I've still got another year before that happens, so I'm still okay. I'm still okay. I'm still a junior, you're but you're still um, safe. You're safe. I'm, got it. I'm still okay. So next year, if you ask me that, I might have a breakdown, but that's you know that's in the future. Sure. Um, <laughs> I'll but send yeah, you so all that's... my GRE tips. I used to teach that too. <laughs> Perfect. I, I'll, I'll um, appreciate it. But yes, yeah, so that's my path. Yeah. 
Fantastic. That is such a cool <laughs> path. I am I am so in awe. You've really found a wonderful niche here. And I love the claim coming and swinging of that everything is related to agriculture. I could absolutely see that. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I don't, I don't know nearly enough enough to back that up. I'm sure you will absolutely kick my butt <laughs> up and down the halls with it. But I, I'm excited to see that too. <laughs> um, so you've really found your niche. That is so exciting. Brendan, congratulations. Thank you. That, that really means a lot. And yeah, it's something that, you know, I never imagined myself doing growing up, but my, my parents sure. are all super supportive of it. My, you know, my family and my friends are all very supportive of it. I'm kind of like the ag guy now. You know, everyone that <laughs> has a question about ag, they go to me about it and stuff. Sure. It's kind of cool, but. I understand yeah. completely. I grew up again <laughs> thinking I was going to be a marine biologist. Turns out, do not like math at all. Um, <laughs> went through quite a few phases in my own career before I ended up Uh, heading back to entertainment and that was a a long winding road of many many variants (laughs) Um, yep so you'll find like a lot of my expertise is in really like the the niche of anything related to deals contracts or any kind of like human relation in a formal setting right so Mm -hmm. say you're building a network say you're building a show uh, whatever it is if it has to do with people management it's probably something i know a bit about Awesome. That is related to people, people only. So when you start talking <laughs> plants and animals, I start looking scared. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, d- I did tell you before, I do have uh, a lifelong fear of large farm animals. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just too big. That's, <laughs> I don't have any other rationale. They're just way too big. I, I guess I had the same misconception about pigs that every other, my friend called me, every other city slicker had that they're like <laughs> up to like your thigh no they're huge they are Mm -hmm. way too large (laughs) and then after reading enough uh criminal cases in law school about the disposal of bodies using pigs it's like okay i like them better when they were teacup size and this is no longer acceptable to me so it's just gotten worse over the years and i I respect that they are in fact like you know intelligent and all that stuff and they can be intelligent Mm -hmm. from over there and i'll I'll be intelligent from over here um so that's where i that's that's my entire relation to agriculture at the moment is um usually being the the person that my, my friends who do know what they're talking about are like, all right, let me explain something from scratch. Amy, ask me a question. <laughs> so happy to be your springboard. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, that's great. And we'll be diving into all of that. I do have a lot of questions about the, the fear of, of farm animals kind of thing. Um, <laughs> I hope not... I have some interesting answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a question with a purpose. You know, it's not just for right. the sake of, of, of teasing you for your fears. But um, <laughs> there, there are some, you know, some curious things that I want to pick apart in there. And sure. um I mean, we'll, we'll go into all the other stuff, too. I, I definitely I, I read over the articles that you sent me about guerrilla gardening and all that. So we'll go into that. Um, sure. I, I want to talk a little bit about farm ethics because you did mention that ethics is kind of a big deal to you. Yeah, um, I got a whole degree in it and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we'll, we'll go over that. Um, you know, I, I you know, would like to pick up, you know, pick up a little bit on like your, you know, you, like you mentioned, you have, you have, you know, uh, dreams of having a greenhouse and that you like foraging and all oh that. Gosh, so we'll go yes. into that. Um, I am <laughs> curious about what exactly a, a wax jambu is. I don't know what that is. Okay, heard of that. Yeah, that's um, okay. So let me, uh, I'm cheating because I know it's an audio medium, but I'm going to send you a photo. Um, the wax jambu is a plant that is, I believe, native to Thailand, I want to say. Okay. Um, and there's, oh, look at that. There's a California tropical trees nursery. So if you so felt inclined, it is apparently locally accessible. Well, huh. local as in within the state of California, and that's a, a big <laughs> spread. But right. um, you see, they're kind of pear-shaped, and they're, well, waxy. They look waxy, at least. They're shiny, and they're smooth to the touch. The skin of them, however, is really quite thin, like pear-thin. Um, and the flesh is, I would say, 
like watermelony, but with hmm. less resistance even. Like it just kind of crumbles in your mouth. There's no oh, core. Wow. And there's like a little bit of a tough spot where the flower, I guess, dies off at the end of the fruit. But other than hmm. that, it is exactly as it looks in just fruit all the way through. It wow. is extremely juicy. It tastes somewhere between like a, a honey crisp apple and like a, an un, you know when you have like an unbelievably good pear that has just like changed your life good. Mm -hmm. It's somewhere between those two. Um, <laughs> but again, with the texture of a watermelon. I have maintained for my entire life that this is the perfect fruit Interesting. <laughs> because you can just eat it with no mess, no nothing, and it's still juicy. It's still flavorful. Um, there's enough resistance so that you don't feel like you're just eating pulp, um, and it's gorgeous, and I have missed them so dearly. I used to live in Hong Kong where I could get them at the grocery, and I have never seen them in the States, not hmm. ever. Um, I have even tried purchasing my own wax jambu tree to attempt to grow in Colorado, which was hubris at its peak, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have been tempted even to order, like, there's a Miami fruits organization that'll sell you a box of them for $99, and despite my spouse looking at me and going, please, Amy, no, don't <laughs> buy $99 worth of fruit, it's been a close call every summer. <laughs> <laughs> so one of these days I'm sure I'll cave, but that is the wax jambu in my perpetual quest to find it at some point again in my life. And I, I suspect it will just mean going back to Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's awesome. I mean, I've definitely, like I said, never heard of that fruit before, but I'm constantly learning new things about a variety of different types of fruits. So that's, I'll definitely have to keep my eye out for that one if I, if I see it. You said that they're accessible in California, so I might... Uh, I'd be able to hook well, you up. the the fruit tree tropicalfruittrees.com apparently is based in California. I'm not sure <laughs> if that means they actually will let you see them or, or what. Um, but in theory, it's growable in like Southern California because uh, it looks for more like a tropical environment. But mm. I'd be, I'd bet you're more likely to run into like a cherimoya if you know what that is. It's like the uh, sugar apple or mm. um, loaf fruit. Depends on the region of Asia, but. It looks like a dragon egg, <laughs> and it tastes like ice cream. So it's also huh. a really cool fruit. Yeah, interesting. You know, I'm learning new things all the time about weird exotic fruits that just apparently <laughs> taste really, really good, and yet no one ever grows. So yes. that's that's Cherimoya, interesting. I think it's because it's it's got seeds in it, so you've got to spit them out. But they're like huge. They're it's hmm. like they're like the size of cherries. The seeds you can't possibly miss them. <laughs> so wow, <laughs> it's super easy. And if you chill it, it legit tastes like you're just eating ice cream. It's really that's crazy. Incredible. That's Something awesome. Called breadfruit too, yeah. Huh. Okay. So I'm curious because you you kind of you know uh, brushed over it right there, but your first interaction was with, with this fruit was in you said Thailand. So my first interaction with it was in Hong Kong. I lived in Hong oh. Kong for golly five years or so, but they were way more frequent in Thailand, and I, I okay. visited Thailand a few times. And they were like on the roadside, like the trees were everywhere. Um, huh. Whereas in Hong Kong, you go get them like saran wrapped in a marketplace or something like that. Um, wow. And in mainland China, they had them too. The breadfruit was actually something that was introduced to me uh, by my friend from Guam. Um, I had not actually, they actually do grow in the States and people don't recognize them as edible fruits because they look like horse apples, um, but they're softer. Hmm. So like, you know how the horse hmm. apple is like almost like a jackfruit and it's just nastiness all the way down. <laughs> um, the mm -hmm. cherimoya <laughs> kind of has a similar scaly look to it, but it's soft. Um, so people will often mistake it as something that's just like a squishy horse apple and rotten or whatever and toss it. Um, but you can actually find quite a few cherimoya trees um, or, uh, oh my gosh, I want to say papau or P-A-P-A-U. It's like the largest fruit native to North America. Oh yeah, I've heard of that. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're native. They're they're relatives to the Cherimoya. They're the okay. undomesticated version, basically. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> wow. um, I managed to convince <laughs> so that's, a friend that's, of mine yeah, who goes to the University of Iowa to go um, try the one on campus because she identified it and she's like, "Are you certain it's edible?" <laughs> I go, "Positive." <laughs> so I do know they exist in the states. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, yeah, no. So that, you know, for anyone who's, you know, who has access to these fruit, make sure you go try it because you have a, a seal of approval that they are delicious. So <laughs> they really are. They're great. Cherimoya, huh. breadfruit, pawpaw, I want to say. I don't remember what the North Native American one was, but you'll mm. might have to Google that. <laughs> In fact, check me on it. <laughs> huh. Wow. So what, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you, if you touched on it or not, but what brought you out to that area that, that allowed you to to try out these fruit in, in the first place <laughs> nothing of my own volition i was a kid <laughs> oh gotcha <laughs> it was my, my father's job and i got to tag okay. along <laughs> gotcha okay makes sense i thought this was like made like during college or something you like did study abroad oh, gosh, or no. <laughs> <laughs> not gotcha. something. here your ethics degree and also you can go to asia for no particular reason like oh well sign <laughs> me up but <laughs> that's awesome all right, well that uh, that that crosses one thing off my list. I, I did want to ask about your <laughs> your exotic fruit taste. So perfect that that addresses that. Um, well, I'll I'll save the 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 more uh, the more fun stuff for for later. Let's go into the greenhouse stream. So, what makes you want to yes. have a greenhouse? Like, what what kind of got you into this whole idea? So I adore picking berries. Um, it's one of the few things that will actually get me outdoors and in nature for an extended period of time. Um, blackberries specifically are the mm-hmm. love of my life, but I will <laughs> I will make do with whatever. Um, I like I like hunting down gooseberries and uh, blueberries and all that stuff too. Wild mm-hmm. strawberries. Um, I just like berries. I don't know. It's just a very <laughs> satisfying thing to pick uh, berries. Um, and they're, you know, very seasonal and the way to cheap seasonal is to have a greenhouse. So <laughs> that's really the logic. Um, and also in theory, I could grow my, my, my precious wax jambu and the cherimoya and all that <laughs> if, if given enough, uh, leeway and I guess, um, property right <laughs> to there you do go. some truly insane things with heaters that I, I could in theory grow them in places like Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> awesome all right well that makes sense i mean i think that that's that's kind of the motivation for a lot of people to get into greenhouse farming is you know just yeah. being able to grow stuff that they normally wouldn't be able to see or maybe they just don't have access to land and so that's kind of like you said cheating the system a little bit you get to totally. you get to have your cake and eat it too you know exactly <laughs> precisely <laughs> Awesome. Um, that was something that i was fascinated in like the the greenhouse thing led me to the Oh, what are they called? Food forests, I want to say, is what they okay. like when you build a sustained, like, um, it, it's not greenhouse, sim- like, similar to it, and that it's a, a cheat of the seasons. It's more in that you use, like, you get tree shelter to make sure that the bushes that you have are growing properly, and then the whole thing recycles itself year and year. Um, so you mm. can actually, like, huh. Just wait basically for your food garden to come back. Like you don't have to replant it every year. I thought that was such a fascinating concept, um, since you can hmm. do it with like a backyard level of area. Granted, this is I have been told this by folks who have been just starting their food forest, so I don't know if they've actually succeeded. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so maybe you can. But um, I, I thought it was an interesting idea to set up basically like a real life terrarium um, with the purpose of building uh, or creating food that you prefer to eat. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. No. To 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 that uh, point, everything works. You know, or everything's a good idea when, at at first. Then you know, you can kind of see over time how 
how well it fares. Exactly. But no, that looks really interesting. I mean, I'm looking at pictures of it right now, you know, and um, it's it's got some it's some interesting attributes to it. Yeah, definitely. And it's meant to be entirely self-sustained. <laughs> is the is the like the idea of like a perfect food forest? I'm not sure how much I buy into that. <laughs> but you know, like I feel like at some point you have to get mulched. But <laughs> um, right. Or like you know, eventually you're like two cows and a herd of chickens down the line and going. It's for the garden. <laughs> like okay, well, it's not just the garden right. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, there there is this idea that's kind of older in you know in terms of agriculture that is you know that the, the land can sustain itself, which obviously right. we see that it did before you know civilization came into place. But um, you know there's there's a lot of uh, agriculturalists who I shouldn't say a lot, but there's quite a few agriculturalists who uh, stick by that mentality of like you know they don't invest much into the land; they just kind of bring you know new things like they they either bring crops or animals that can kind of sustain themselves and each other and they just kind of let them do their thing and just keep the land uh going and so fascinating yeah so um i actually know some people and the the level of of you know effectiveness of this is kind of varying it depends on the operation it doesn't work for everybody some people it does but um you know like there are some people who will buy you know like uh some some cattle and they'll buy like some i mean that's kind of the motivation behind the grass-fed you know beef theory is that you know if you if you leave them out on the pasture then you don't have to fertilize the pasture they'll they'll kind of fertilize it themselves and so okay so then you can just kind of rotate them to make sure you have your okay all right exactly so yeah so they have crop or or not crop rotation they have a pasture rotation Uh, crop rotation is a different thing but um pasture rotation is built around that idea and it's mostly a grass-fed operation uh style you know you don't really see you know that kind of thing happening in in, uh, what we call CAFOs um sure. so uh, i'm not sure if you're familiar with aphos versus kfos or I mean, that's I kind of not, a new not even remotely <laughs> what are those <laughs> well that's 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 fair because most people in agriculture aren't even familiar with that it's kind of a newer term that's been brought into the, the industry um well, so a, this is exciting <laughs> so so an afo or afo is is an animal feeding operation okay. and so a, a kfo as, as as i'm sure you can guess is a confined animal feeding operation sure. okay. so Basically, just to illustrate a picture of what that might look uh, look look like for you is like uh, I'm sure you've seen you know ranches or dairies where they have like the you know they have metal fencing and they have you know um, like everything is is you know structurally designed like there's there's no uh, pasture land it's all built around having them in pens and you know they have uh, you know designed feed troughs for uh, for their feed and they have like you know uh, they have pathways for them to travel from pen to pen or from you know from barn to barn um, sure. so that's that's considered a CAFO so. Um, because they're confined, you know, gotcha. they're not left to the natural environment. They're, you know, they're in they're in what's considered a confined animal feeding operation. An AFO would be something that's considered free range, you know, grass fed, you know, anything that that doesn't confine them to a particular type of structure. They kind of have, you know, the ability to wander wherever they want. Uh, that's typically referred to as an AFO. So I'm curious in terms of the. I, I know the term free range has legal and like regulatory implication. But I'm curious mm-hmm. as to like what the agricultural definition of free range is. Like, presumably there's a fence at some point, yeah? Or does like occasionally a cow just leave? <laughs> like, is there <laughs> is that like part of it, or what? What would you say free range is? So it, it's dependent on the operation, and so some some operations okay. will have you know uh, the, the the definition can vary somewhat. I, I don't think there's actually like a a definitive you know term on on like when it's considered free range versus when it's not as long as there's you know certain criteria that are true you know if if it's true sure. that the that the that the animals can wander 
um you know pass a certain distance i'm sure it's considered free range but like usually yes yeah. there's some kind of fencing you know you don't want your cattle to wander onto the street right. and get hit by a car or something <laughs> right um you Not know exactly you don't want your... for the cattle yeah <laughs> right yeah you don't want your goats to wander into somebody's yard and eat their you know eat their plants you know but um <laughs> Accidental the, what, food forestry, <laughs> <laughs> right? To, to, but to what degree they they consider it free range? I'm not entirely sure. sure if there's like a there's a point where it's like if you have a fence, you know, a hundred acres out, then it's considered free range. But if it's you know if it's if not if it's 99, it's no longer considered free range. I don't think it's like that you know specific. Um, sure. Free range is kind of just like a general term that means they're not confined into a particular pen. Usually they're they're okay. out um, on a, on an on an open area that allows them to interact with the natural environment. Okay. Okay, so as close to natural environment as possible. Okay, interesting. Pretty much, um, yeah. I would check out the regulations per state for that, too. I remember um, reading about some regulations for chickens and free range and how it had been skewed drastically from state to state. Like, a, like it was something like five square foot per chicken of movable huh. space considered free range because they are, like, the argument was that they don't move much. Um, but they also based that off of contained <laughs> chickens, right. which was kind of a strange <laughs> choice. Um, so I would be curious your thoughts on that and whether or not you would consider that free range. Um, and I, yeah. I think it is a state dependent thing. So I'm, I'm not sure mm. if there's a quotable single federal source for that. Right. And so that, that's a good point, too, is that, again, it's going to it's going to vary, you know, on the, on the regulatory basis from state to state as well. And so, you know, there's mm -hmm. you'll, you'll find with agriculture, a lot of terminology is variable on a lot of different things. You know, it's, it's not necessarily like, you know, most terms have some kind of level of concrete meaning, but they can be skewed a little bit. So um, that's why agriculture is, is a difficult industry to work in is because not everything sure. means the same thing from operation to operation. And so, I mean, like you hear the word sustainability thrown around quite a bit. Sustainability means sure. a lot of different things. And so yeah. it's it's it hard does. to define. Right. So, I mean, and that's that's kind of the issue is that, you know, there's there's a lot of terms to remember and not all of them mean the same thing in every context. Um, Correct. So address, yeah, addressing that point from the free range perspective, most most of the time it does refer to you know the 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 amount of acreage per head is you know that's what considers it free range okay, got it. um that's that's kind of like the the defining you know term but it varies from like you said it varies from state to state and it varies from operation to operation and so yeah. You know, you might have, you know, let's just say you have a backyard that's fairly significant, you know, significant in size. You know, if you have a 10 acre backyard um, sure. and you have two chickens out there, technically they're considered free range chickens. But, Definitely. you know, that, <laughs> but, but that hope. same, you know, if you have that same amount of land and you have three more chickens, all of a sudden it's not free range anymore. So it's sure. not the it's not the land that makes them free range. It's the amount of space that they have to interact with the land. And so sure. that's where okay. the terms start to get a little bit, you know, hard to hard okay. to draw. like the lines are hard to draw. And so sure. I can't remember what exactly the, the requirements are for California. I know for cattle, it's like I think it's one to two acres per head. Uh, that's cow and calf. Oh, wow. Um so yeah, that's it's it's significantly less. For like, yeah, but that's still. I mean, that adds up if you have a huge herd of cattle. Granted, mm -hmm. okay, I grew up in cities. An acre is huge to me. So, <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, it's more than ten <laughs> foot by ten foot. I'm already like, oh wow, that's too much. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, it, but okay. that also depends on the operation. I think that in other states, I think that's just in California as well. So like in other sure. states, 
you know, it might be, you know, a cow gets gets five acres to itself or might get, you know, half an acre to itself. Like it kind of just it's it's hard to say like, you know, oh, yeah, this is exactly what it means because it might mean something different where you're at. And in other countries, they have way different regulations. I mean, (laughs) you know, like like my um, I have a family that goes to Portugal all the time to, you know, to visit like with with their family. And Mm -hmm. they have, you know, cattle and and livestock just walking through the middle of the road. Like, and they don't even have fences. You know, they just kind of let them wander. That's the freest of range. Right. Yeah, they've unlocked ultimate free range. And so, (laughs) like, that's that's kind of like, you know, it's hard to, you know, harder to determine exactly where the lines are for this stuff just because it can vary so much. Sure. That makes sense. That's Mm. fascinating. Okay, yeah. so I guess my question, my follow-up question on that is that a lot of these, um, the, the ag terms got kind of stolen into popular culture in mm-hmm. terms of like free-range, organic, sustainable, all that stuff. Like you actually, you said, and I wholeheartedly agree, those mean wildly different things depending <laughs> on context. Um, yep. And I had a friend explain to me once why organic was probably actually not what you thought it was, and I cannot remember the details, but something about like not even being <laughs> able to offer certain antibiotics or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and that meant that the life and quality of life of the animal might actually be extremely terrible, whereas you're thinking that the organic, you in your mind are seeing like cows prancing through green pastures or whatever. I don't know what cows do, but um, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're picturing happy, like the whole point of it is to encourage happy farming and happy animals and all that stuff but it Mm. seems to be directly misaligned with how that's been branded by folks like i guess distributors so the the not Mm. farmers of the equation who take the um aforementioned prancing cows and (laughs) synthesize that (laughs) into the word organic and slap that label on so what are your what are your thoughts about that and how that has impacted how people shop and pick their products and all that stuff you know, that's a really, really good question. And it's a really important conversation that I think isn't had enough. Um, and that's that, you know, there's a lot of, like you mentioned, there's a lot of terms, there's a lot of labels that are thrown around that relate to agriculture, but nobody really knows what they mean or, or in what ways that is reflected in the agriculture industry. You know, so they hear organic or, you know, they hear grass fed or they hear, you know, like all these other terms that they see labels for sure. antibiotic free, pesticide free. And they think, oh yeah, that was raised on a, you know, on a health, on a farm that's doing it right. You right. know, a farm that's, that's healthy right. and they're, they're doing great. See the when in reality, all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like when in reality, that farm might be, you know, they might have animals that are struggling to make it through the next, through the next day because they can't give them antibiotics. And so, right. um, it, it kind of, you know, there's there's some truth and there's some you know there's some myth to to everything that's said sure. about those about those terms you know on both sides, and so mm-hmm. I will say in terms of the organic side of things, so like you mentioned that you know um, in, in organic operations they can't give you know they can't administer uh, antibiotics to animals that they're sick, mm-hmm. um, that's true to a degree. Uh, so it's specific every... antibiotics, right? Right. It's 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 specific. It's dosage, and it's okay. um, not always the case that that new that that doesn't always mean that that animal is going to die if it doesn't get that antibiotic. Sure. What typically will happen is that you know you have a lot of organic uh, farmers. And this is actually a common misconception. Just because somebody sells product that goes on to be marketed as organic doesn't mean they're an organic farmer exclusively. Interesting. Um, you have actually a lot of farmers that choose to uh, run both. So they'll have like an organic operation down the road, and then the other direction they have a conventional operation. And Fascinating. so, what would be the benefit the reason, of doing that? So mostly it's it's for financial gain because okay, there's really it. not much uh, difference in terms of like the you know the well 
that I shouldn't say there there is a significant difference in terms of the, the in terms of the financial investment, but you do sure. get a, a solid premium for having organic uh, products, and so because people will pay for it, you know, it's sure. literally no difference in terms of health, you know, benefits, but people will pay for it, and therefore it gets you more money. Um, sure. So you'll have farmers, you know, people like to think like the organic farmers, like this super great guy who, who you know who would never <laughs> you know who would never dare you know put any chemicals on on their on their crops or anything sure. or, or you know give, give antibiotics to their to their animals. When really it's the same guy that's doing that. He's just doing it down the road so you can't see him. Got it. (laughs) It is I, organic Fred, not synthetic Fred. He's that way. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so it's the same guy. He's just wearing a fake mustache and he's, you know, he's selling you a different product. But, and that's not to say, you know, like agriculture is not, you know, trying to be deceitful in that way. It's just that the consumers haven't taken the time to figure that out, you know, like, it's 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 literally like and this isn't to say like the people who you know do that are bad people or anything i I actually know some people that do that they're really good people it's just that you know if they can make some extra money for their family they're gonna do it yeah and and so it's just it's funny to me whenever people have the whole like you know <laughs> idea in their head that like oh yeah i, I bought this I from an organic farmer organic farms and like, <laughs> right. okay all right <laughs> okay. so what what'll typically will typically happen is you, like let's just say you have a, a farmer who raises um you know organic beef and he raises conventional beef and the sure. operations are like around the street from each other okay. um if you have if he, if he has an organic herd and let's just say one of the calves gets sick uh he can wash that calf for a few days and if he feels like the calf isn't going to survive without the antibiotics he could administer the antibiotics but now that calf is taken out of that herd and put in the other herd Gotcha. So when you can't cut it with the organic herd, they basically just walk you down the street <laughs> to where exactly. the antibiotics are. Okay. Yeah. So it's actually to the so benefit th- of the animals and crops as well, presumably. That like exactly. you have that fallback. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the entire idea behind it is not to allow the animals to suffer because the number one priority of of an animal, Excellent. you know, somebody who who focuses on animal husbandry is to maintain the health and and you know well being of that animal. You know, to right. basically like the common like catchphrase of dairymen, at least where I'm from, is that you know dairymen their entire job isn't to make milk; it's to make happy cows, and the happy cows make milk. Right. <laughs> and so that that mentality you know is is something that kind of i think should be pushed a lot more in the organic market is that you know organic cows uh, you know organic cows who get sick don't die they just go and become non-organic cows right and there's not a significant like drop in quality or happiness or whatever it's an entirely different setup interesting that's Mm -hmm. fascinating yeah Yeah. that's exactly what i was curious about because i I was thinking (laughs) surely it is not to the benefit of the farmer either to have like you know the horror uh, images that get pumped around about like this cow (laughs) has exactly one square foot and they're balancing on one toe and they're sad and crying every day like like, surely that can't actually be helpful (laughs) (laughs) no and and you'll find that you know the deeper you go into the idea of you know uh like farmers not taking care of their animals or their crops the the more you'll start to realize that that's actually hurting them more in the long run than it is anybody else. Yeah, because like, I mean, surely you know, then I mean, talk about sustainability. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not exactly keep up. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. There's okay, there's there's a lot of people out there that like to try to convince you that you know farmers don't like to take care of their animals because it costs them more money. No, it costs them more money to not take care of their animals. You know, if right. if they have. You know, if they have a sick animal and that animal dies, they lost a lot more money than they would have just putting some more medicine into that animal to make sure it doesn't die. You know, right? So 
Right. And, and not only that, you know, is the animal. It's, it would be very weird to have your livelihood in terrible condition. That seems like a poor choice. <laughs> but... Right, exactly. No, and, and, and not just that, like I mentioned with the dairymen, you know, their purpose is to produce happy cows. And that's right. not just a PR stunt. You know, it's not just to make people feel good right. about drinking milk from happy cows. There's literally a correlation between product and, and you know, stress levels on the producer. So <laughs> if you have cows that are stressed out, they're not going to produce as much milk and their milk isn't going to taste as good. So you really you really want to make sure that they're happy and low stress as much as possible. That way they produce the highest quality milk you can and you can get the most money out of it. That is okay. So that is, that's, I'm going to have to go look up some articles for that and share them uh, with my <laughs> spouse and housemate because like um, my, my husband and I, we started a, a company last September for um, called Faustian Nonsense, where essentially we both followed our lifelong goal of zero compromise <laughs> in our creative <laughs> endeavors. Meaning that if you have an unhappy creator, the, creation that you get is going to suck mm-hmm. um having an artist who is overworked underpaid does not like the subject matter and is doing this to make rent they're going to make you something that barely passes versus something that <laughs> they adore painting they're going to spend hours and hours and on and it's going to be something that they clearly poured love into and their soul into and all that stuff mm-hmm. same with and we're currently focusing on podcasts um but podcast creators you can tell somebody who's like i think this is going to be a hit idea i don't love it but i think it's going to be a hit (laughs) like all right well then you shouldn't be the one who's making it it's great to pitch Mm -hmm. the idea to somebody else but it's going to be a lot more sustainable if it's somebody who can pour in the the heart and soul to actually bring it to life um so that is fascinating that that is reflected in agriculture (laughs) in the sense of like the happy cow produces the most and best milk i'm going to have to reiterate that much to the confusion i'm sure of the other fn employees <laughs> of don't worry we're aiming for happy cows guys and I'm like, hmm, that's a weird right. comment from you amy but okay um so that's, yeah that's no fantastic. exactly and, and that, i mean that that's true across all platforms i mean that's not just like like you mentioned you know a, a content creator that doesn't love what they're doing or is stressed out by the amount of work they have on their on their plate is going to produce less you know like lower quality product uh, products overall absolutely the same goes for everything i mean it doesn't matter what industry you're talking about and especially in agriculture and you know it's even more so because like cows don't have the ability to work on their mental health like they don't really have like you know like <laughs> there's <don't>. like <laughs> right. right like like you don't you don't see cows meditating off in the pastures usually like they they just kind of do their thing and if they get stressed out then you're kind of you know you're up a creek at that point you really can't do anything about it so Sure. The the whole you know the whole purpose is to and that goes for you know uh, dairy you know dairy cows that produce milk that goes for animals that are going to be used for uh, meat products that goes for sure. uh, egg laying chickens you know anything that's going to produce a product that is going to be consumed by a person you're going to want that animal as as happy and as stress free as possible because there's actually a phenomenon in the meat industry known as dark cutters and I don't know if you ever heard of this term I have not what is that. So a dark cutter, it's a, it's another somewhat, you know, kind of relatively new term, but we've also kind of known about it for a while. It's it's complicated. Okay. Um, <laughs> so dark cutters are uh, animals that whenever you uh, th- put them through processing, so after, you know, they've gone through their entire lifespan and, sure. and we decide to turn them into uh, meat products, they mm-hmm. cut really, really, really dark red. And so what that means is, you know, like, let's just say we take a, a pig, for example, and we're going to try to make, a, you know, a, a pork chop out of it, and, you know, some or like pig, lo- you know, uh, sure. pork loins, or, you know, whatever you're trying to make out of it. If you make that cut, because uh, in the meat industry, we, we determine quality by cutting the ribeye. And so we, we look at the, okay. the size of the ribeye, and that kind of tells us how good the meat's going to be. 
if they make the cut in the ribeye to grate it and they see that that cut is extremely dark red because like pork is almost considered a white meat it's a very very light pink and it's almost considered white and so if if pork is like that dark of a red that is not good like yeah that's, okay that's like seriously seriously bad so a dark cutter is an animal who was so stressed out that their meat is now nearly toxic for people to eat like oh even my if you gosh. yeah so even if you cook it you can't cook it out of them you can't prepare it properly like no matter what you do if, if the if the meat is stressed enough it becomes completely inedible for humans and actually can make them sick and so that is remarkable yeah, and so if that's not an argument for you know farmers trying to keep their animals as happy sure. as possible, I don't, I don't know what is. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's literally inedible. Oh my gosh. Okay, that, so even from like ethics put aside, which obviously you know I care plenty about, but mm-hmm. um, often folks will listen much more to their bank than to their ethicist. Um, right. That is that is a I mean that's a hell of an argument for for the bank is um, <laughs> yeah. you literally cannot make money off of this if you cannot keep your animal happy. Fascinating. Right. Okay. So yeah, if you go from the from the biological, from the ethical, from the you know financial, from the economic, no matter what perspective you look at it, a- animals being stressed out backfires on the farmer tenfold. So you really totally. want to make sure you know if you're involved in agriculture that the number one priority is taking care of your animals. It, same goes for crops. If you stress out crops, they'll produce poor product if they produce anything at all sometimes they'll just skip a year of producing fruit if they're if they're too stressed so sure. like making sure that you keep whatever it is you're trying to cultivate as healthy and as happy as possible is your number one goal no matter what okay that makes sense um mm-hmm. okay then what are your thoughts on i'm surely i've heard like all sorts of horror stories from like articles i read for ethics classes from you know knowing other ethicists that will send me other crazy articles and that i don't know nearly enough about to make a judgment call on <laughs> but i i have a hunch that there is something mirrored in just about every industry where there are big conglomerates that do some pretty heinous stuff because they can afford to do so right like the cost of tenfold is something they can afford to do is that something that does occur in larger like uh what's the one that gets all the 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 crap thrown out tyson i think oh tyson's a big one um monsanto's kind of one of those in terms of gmos yes um you know there's there's all kinds of stuff on on that Um, is it because they can afford that tenfold um penalty for the the poor agriculture practice yeah so it's kind of i'm sure it's complicated it is this this goes with everything there's 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 gonna be a certain level of complexity with it um with agriculture, you know, as agriculture at the end of the day is an industry. And with any sure. industry, there's going to be hierarchies of power, you know, determined by people who are very, very good at that industry, you know. Sure. Um, and so when you have corporate con- conglomerates like that, there tends to be levels of, of corruption involved. And that goes across all industries. And so at Absolutely. the end of the day, you know, there, there, there needs to be a statement made about the fact that, yes, there are, um, you know, there are even small farmers out there that are bad at their practice. And whether they do it sure. intentionally or not, you know, some sometimes their, um, you know, their animals or their crops or their operation suffer from it. And so, sure. uh, like, that's not to say that, you know, like, they're like, the, 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 they're, um, Let's see how do I want to write this. <laughs> <laughs> like you see, like the videos all the time of like farmers like you know mistreating animals or like you know un- right. like uh, unhealthy and the like un- unsanitary conditions and that kind of stuff. Sure, that stuff does happen. You know, it's not to say it doesn't. It's not to say sure. every farmer's perfect. Like there's definitely going to be instances of that kind of stuff happening. We try mm-hmm. to prevent it as much as possible. And anytime we see that, you know, people who are on the right side of the agricultural spectrum try to really make sure that we like let people know we don't support that. You know, like if we see a farmer. Right 
abusing their animals and we or, or you know like mistreating their their operation or even abusing workers you know we we make sure right. that we say hey that's not okay we don't do that we don't condone any of that kind of behavior don't associate him with us mm-hmm. and so that's kind of just like a covering our backs kind of thing so sure. on that note you will see that on the corporate level just because it's difficult to sure. get away from that you know because it's yeah. it's you know it's corporate but the important well, thing to keep in mind people who are about as ignorant as i am making business decisions about agriculture right saying like well that's a few thousand cattle lost to disease or whatever and the answer is quite a bit actually <laughs> but <laughs> right. is that about right would you say that there's a lot of like um i guess i, I what have what have uh, what did i call it before out of touch management um mm-hmm. where it's something that i've studied before as an ethicist is that it ultimately ends up in the collapse of whatever that corporate conglomerate is because it's mm-hmm. not sustainable like if say for example you fire all of your workers and replace them with folks who are overworked underpaid undertrained and all that stuff the quality diminishes people stop buying the product or service and you have now lost way more money than you could have gained by treating your people as assets i am guessing there's something similar to that in agriculture in the sense of like these poor practices are ultimately going to bite them in the butt eventually even if they have a a huge head start as, as a corporate conglomerate Yes, no, exactly. You hit the you hit the nail right on the head with that. That's exactly what is going on. You know, you have a lot of instances where, like, because more often than not, if somebody's running a, a you know an agriculturally based corporation and they know agriculture, they try to avoid making those mistakes because they understand right. the ramifications of them. It's when you have people coming in that have no experience in agriculture or you know they they have very little or or the experience they do have isn't with you know working with the actual workers or the animals. It's more gotcha. in like the like the financial part of it that they start to make decisions that have negative ramifications on the operation um so like just to give an example like this and this isn't an example of somebody who's doing it wrong but this is an example of somebody who's disconnected from agriculture running an agricultural corporation uh, have you ever heard of wonderful uh the word or <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's, no. it's a company so you have like uh wonderful orchards wonderful pistachios wonderful you know huh. uh, almonds all that kind of stuff i'll look for them next time i'm in the store <laughs> uh so yeah wonderful is a massive uh, just like huge agricultural corporation that is based around mostly trees. So they have like, you know, wonderful citrus, they have wonderful pistachios, they have wonderful pomegranates, like they have all kinds of okay. different, you know, tree based fruit and, you know, fruit and nuts, basically. And mm-hmm. they like their main CEO, like the, like the head of heads, you know, the, the most important guy, sure. um, you know, he's from LA, he knows absolutely nothing about agriculture, like never, That's, you know, never been yeah. near agriculture. Big like, old knows nothing about it <laughs> right yeah. so actually you know surprisingly he's, he's been you know running the corporation incredibly well like the That's like good. wonderful has been reported as one of the best agricultural corporations to work for and like All they right. take very very good care of their workers which is awesome um but that's an example of, you know, a massive disconnection between the up, you know, the higher ups and the like, the actual agricultural work. So, um, again, yeah. you know, that's that's an example of, again, somebody this is somebody who is doing it right. But somebody who decides I mean, to not go in that direction, it would still be better to have somebody who does have an agricultural background, you know, right. Um, so that would be the idea. Interesting. Okay. So, I, I mean, I guess then the ultimate, like, I guess I, I see all sorts of different theorems of, like, what the best thing you can do to support farmers is or whatever. I guess the best thing you could do would be to support farmers' voices, to say, like, actually, no, you should listen to the person who's raising these animals and crops over executive mr executive from la who might very well try to honor that but doesn't have the resume needed in order to control this at a much larger level and understand the intricacy of it yes and so that's that's kind of our biggest call to action is that you know not that you should you know like 
that's not to say completely discredit everything that somebody running those types of corporations is saying, but be sure, sure. to listen to the farmer side of it too, because the farmers Absolutely. are actually working with it. They know, you know, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Okay. That's mm-hmm. fascinating. Then are there any <laughs> move? I, I suppose, I suppose FFA would be a big movement for like educating farmers so that they can build up to that executive level and have that sort of influence rather than say the, the big scary Tyson Monsantos and <laughs> that line. <laughs> right. And so that's that's actually an interesting point because FFA is um that's that's a common misconception with the organization is that it's built for, you know, young people in agriculture to get further. What FFA's entire purpose is to, is to try to get people who aren't even involved in agriculture into the industry. Oh, and that's fascinating. Okay. And not just get them involved like in the, in, in the industry in terms of make them farmers, but make them aware of how deeply agriculture ties into everything. Because so that there's way you a can lot spot of, that organic that label and go, hmm, I don't know about that. And see the, <laughs> exactly. the grass fed and go, okay, but is this grass fed Fred with the fake mustache or is this, how, <laughs> how does that mean? Like, right. Okay, got it. Yeah. So it's, you know, the entire purpose of the, of the organization is to have better conversations and to have better education for people not involved in agriculture and even more specifically to help people who aren't planning on going into agriculture still have awareness of it and so that's kind of i mean i'm you know i'm a product of ffa obviously and i went into it without much knowledge and much really interest in agriculture and i came out of it running a whole podcast about it and so (laughs) i'd say they sufficiently got your interest at least (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a fair statement um and, and, you know, one of the things we try to focus on in FFA is, you know, show people that agriculture is way more than just farming. I mean, sure. um, agriculture can explain, as you listen to my, you know, my tech episode, there's a lot yes. of involvement in agriculture that has to do with robotics and artificial intelligence and, uh, you know, computer science and drone technology and even like lawmaking, you know, and legislation. Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember you know, studying about the constru- um, John Deere cases and the absolute nonsense they pull over on farmers by saying that you can purchase the license to use it, but the tractor is not actually yours. And mm-hmm. that was an eye-opening class. <laughs> I suddenly understood why there are hundreds and hundreds of tractors in the roadside that nobody can touch because John Deere has said, by the way, you never actually purchased it, nah, 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 nah. and right. <laughs> leaving people in <laughs> unbelievable amounts of debt. So that was wild to, to learn mm-hmm. about. Um, that, and I'm, I was really glad that you touched on that, too, of like, yeah, we have actually all these advances. The problem being. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Yeah, cool. So I bet that that would be a big reason for agriculturalists to uh, join forces with the the open source movement and the 3D printer movements and the stuff of like, okay, well, we don't actually need you, John Deere. (laughs) John, not so dear. Um, We can can make our own bits and pieces. So I, I wonder how much of an intersection there is between that and the huge surge of tech startup and all the good and horrible that comes with it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's there's actually quite a bit of involvement with agriculture in newer technologies as obviously we have like artificial intelligence and uh you know we have we have drone technology and that kind of stuff and Absolutely. precision agriculture is a huge you know new thing coming into the, the you know the arena but um there's actually so in my hometown Tulare, you know as, as we talked about which i still need to That's figure right. out where you've heard <laughs> of us but um in my hometown we have what's called the world bag expo and um, okay. Every year, it's this, it's this massive, you know, exposition where it's basically a, you know, kind of like a trade show. But it's, and there's people that come from like tons and tons of different countries. Like I've met people from Germany, from France, from Sweden, from uh, like Japan, from Australia, um, from mm-hmm. all over the place. And they all come to my little hometown because we have this massive show where uh, companies, both agricultural and non, can show off new technology that they're creating that can benefit the agriculture industry. And okay, that's you, fascinating. 
like you wouldn't believe the kind of stuff that I've seen at some of these shows. And I've, I've done videos <laughs> on all of them on my YouTube channel. Like every year they ask me to come back and do, you know, videos on them. And so I've been able to, to do that. So, That's so fun. there's some, there, yo, it's awesome. It's, it, I call it farmer Disneyland essentially. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and there's some awesome stuff in there. And so, you know, that being said, you know, as you mentioned, like with the 3D printing technology and even there's like, you know, newer technologies developing with like, you know, at, at some of those shows, they use virtual reality to give tours of their farms and to show off some of the <laughs> wow. stuff that they're building. And so like literally like when you like when you think of like a tech trade show, but farmers like that's 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 basically what you're dealing with here. And so that kind of gives a glimpse as to how in depth, you know, and, and how deeply, to, you know, tied to to not more more modern technology agriculture is and it kind of you know brings a lot of hope for the future of 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 what agriculture can really do and so the idea is that you know with advancements in technology we could like you mentioned do things like you know produce our own tractor parts or you know uh produce you know produce things that would allow us uh, that would allow us to become more self-sufficient if i could speak (laughs) um and you know and not have to rely on a bunch of different companies to loan us things because that's one of the biggest concerns in agriculture is having to you know basically sell your soul to be able to do what you want to what you want to do yeah ain't that the ain't that the truth capitalism (laughs) comes to bite us all um especially man john deere that that was rough (laughs) listener if you haven't read those cases before do so oh my Um, god (laughs) i've heard of them they're not you know i'm not super familiar with them but i I did hear about them you know a while ago there was a uh a case in particular for i believe it was a combine harvester i want to say i might be wholly Mm. making that term up so you'll (laughs) have to triple check but the (laughs) blades of it or something were rusting and needed to be changed or something to that effect and so the farmer in question did so and john deere sued sued oh. for a repossession of the now fixed combine harvester in near mint condition thanks to the farmer saying that the farmer had violated the terms and service of use and they got back a fully functional brand new combine harvester that they could sell back to guess who same guy so he essentially bought his own combine harvester again after fixing it it was wow unbelievable that they that they managed to pull that off and it it basically stemmed from ip where they said okay but the combine harvester is programmed and because it's programmed to have certain whatevers messing with it is incredibly dangerous and you could really hurt yourself to which the farmer said yeah that's why i called y'all like 50 times (laughs) and no one ever picked up and i have to harvest at some point y'all so like (laughs) at some point it was more practical for me to just say well i have a blade (laughs) i can just put it in and call it a day um and the terms and service was so extensive and specific about that that basically the court had to rule in favor of John Deere saying that, well, you did sign something saying that you would never alter it um, in, for commercial gain, which, of course, a farmer who sells their product anytime they use a tractor or combine harvester or whatever else, that is for commercial gain mm-hmm. <laughs> was the argument. So it was really, it was just brutal. Um, wow. It was one of the first uh, cases my IP professor showed us to be like, hey, so the concept of protecting intellectual property is noble at all, but here's how it can backfire. <laughs> <laughs> wow, um, that, that's crazy. That, yeah, I hadn't heard of that. Isn't it? And he basically went bankrupt because of that. And it was it was just wild to, to read that and see like what the actual motivation was. And the motivation, of course, from John Deere was to make more money since they sold a wonderful machine mm-hmm. and could only sell it once. 
poor babies. Right. So <laughs> they had to come yep. up with a way to sell it again. Ugh, so. huh. And that's where like a lot of that's planned crazy. obsolescence yeah. comes in and everything. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, John Deere is going to be in trouble over the next few years. But um, no, it's just <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean you hear stories about that kind of stuff happening a lot in the ag industry and that's mostly because sure. you know a, a lot of people don't realize that they can go into you know ag law or you know a, a yeah. lobbying or you know there's, there's a lot of different types of agriculture that aren't farming based and so like you know there's there's been lawsuits recently about or this was a few years ago now but like when drone when drone technology first became more common in agriculture um there was a lot of uh, privacy issues you know people were sure. uh, like flying you know flying their drones over over their fields and like if they saw into like sometimes you know they would do it unintentionally sometimes they would do it completely intentionally sure. they would fly over onto their neighbors you uh-huh. know land and then then they would look at what they were doing neighbors would shoot down the the drone <laughs> with a shotgun <laughs> Oh, and man. and can you imagine I, seeing that on the feed like oh well oh man <laughs> I, I i can imagine they had a good laugh but yeah no as you can imagine lawsuits you know lawsuits ensued and and sure. as as yeah. i'm sure you know you know stuff happens but um so like that, that was an example of you know what you would consider like an agricultural like law you know issue going on like you mentioned with the tractor situation um yeah. like there was a there was a pest control uh or not pest control a um uh, crop sprayer like a crop duster um mm-hmm. that i actually knew he was from uh hanford i think he was kind of from like near my hometown and mm-hmm. he uh was flying in his plane over to go to do, to go dust some fields and just flying over some property that he wasn't even dusting at somebody actually shot at his plane because oh they they didn't like that he was that he was flying near their property he had nothing to do with the property you know he wasn't dusting them he Air wasn't anywhere near them such a big deal though oh right my gosh. And so, like, like that kind of stuff, like, there was a huge lawsuit for that. It was on the news. Like, that was one of the few times that crop dusters have ever gotten on local news. And so I'm that was sure, kind of a big yeah. deal. It's otherwise <laughs> a pretty self-contained <laughs> bubble right. back, I'm sure. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Gosh. And so, like, that kind of stuff. Like, right now, um, legislators in California are fighting for water rights for farmers. And so that's a huge, yeah. you know, hot topic right oh, now. I'm so, sure. like, Trying you know, ag laws. Nestle into playing nice. Oh yeah, no. There's. <laughs> I'm sure you have plenty so of feelings lovely. about Nestle. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Okay. But yeah, so there's there's a lot to say in that department. <laughs> to to offer a slightly a lighter uh, avenue of drone information stuff, since it's usually tied with so many questionable things. Like in, inevitably, it starts with like a you can see your flowers from afar, and like somehow now we're killing people. Oh my god, um, that, that was a quick escalation, but. Um, there was a rent fair somebody brought a drone to and somebody took it down with a spear just instinctively and they came up to the person they apologized they're like i will buy you a new one i am so sorry i have no idea why i did that and the person who owned the drone was like actually that was one of the most badass things i've ever seen do you want to make an event out of it we'll call it taking down dragons so now that's awesome i don't remember the state but there's a rent fair where people will bring their drones and try to train them so that they are like un- impossible to take down and people with spears and crossbows <laughs> <laughs> will do their best to take them down so that's probably one of my most favorite intersections of modern and ancient culture that's so cool <laughs> is that not the most cool thing you've ever heard so that's that, what i that's thought really of when cool. he said shooting down the drone i was like oh there's a guy at a rent fair somewhere <laughs> with a stick who can really bring his point home <laughs> that's awesome that's that, that's even cooler than what i found out about drone racing recently that was like one of the yeah. coolest things i ever heard of with drones that wild? beats it by far <laughs> i know imagine being able to hire your very own spearman to protect your farm perimeter <laughs> see now that would be an interesting you know. ag job like right dave yeah, the I, local I viking that. we'll bring him in to 
It's just another guy in the same mustache. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, he's got both the farms down the street and the spear farm, which is you know much more difficult than you'd think. Well, that's fascinating. Right. Um, I, yeah. I didn't realize how much of a, an intersection between, um, I don't know what you called it, organic and I guess non-organic would be the or standard. Conventional. Conventional. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I didn't yep. realize how much that intersected and how they supported each other. That's really fascinating. Um, yeah. So thank you for teaching me about that. <laughs> of course. So there were a couple more things on, on the list that I wanted to um, <laughs> to get hometown, to. Your hometown, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, yes. I, I do want to know where, where you know, how you know about Tulare because, you know, we, okay. we're not the most well-known, uh, you know, city in in california it's true so all right um i will forewarn now that there's spoilers for the podcast that is yet to be released so i feel just right enough <laughs> talking about it but if you ever so happen to go follow faustian nonsense in our um original production jack of all trades i will i'm warning you now plug your ears i i don't have a way of warning you when it's done you'll just have to trust me um but, uh the main character jack uh grew up in a town in the middle of nowhere southern california and the reason it was chosen to be in the middle of nowhere and relatively small was that it was supposed to be a fake town they kind of truman showed her and she's not actually what she thinks she is and her parents her adoptive parents her entire community are in fact witches and they literally constructed the town for the purposes of raising her so when she ran away up and gone they were gone forever so we were trying to find small towns in southern california that could (laughs) potentially be run by witches (laughs) so delary was on the list (laughs) if you are ever wondering (laughs) oh man you want to go real deep sea conspiracy but um it was on we ended up making up one for uh, on our own we called it covena like coven Uh but um Mm. delary we were considering it and then you know my co-writer and housemate jack was like maybe we shouldn't do that with a real town <laughs> which you know made a solid point <laughs> uh, that's awesome you know if, if it came out that my town was run by witches i wouldn't be entirely surprised honestly it might be a great thing you know it's like it okay so the house cows are like super happy because of witchcraft nice all right like, <laughs> that's that's awesome <laughs> hey if it supports local farmers then i'm all for it precisely and they are good witches. they're really they're kind so it's, it's right. all good things from here <laughs> you heard yeah, it here no, first exactly. so it's hilarious fake um <laughs> that's awesome that's how i know Tulare. <laughs> good to know well you know there i actually found that there are actually Tulare's in other states that oh, i'm yeah, always really? surprised to find out about and there's a, there's a um so i was actually uh, born and raised in a smaller town called tipton which is really right next to Tulare. Mm-hmm. and uh there's a texas tipton or there's a tipton in texas okay and there's like a Tulare in i think kentucky or something like that like oh there's gosh. like little like you know like it's, it's always weird hearing like your own town in another state uh-huh. there's like oh <laughs> like I, I i've never met somebody from there but i just imagine i meet somebody and they're from Tulare and there's like hey i'm from Tulare i'm like no way me too what high school did you go to and there's like come from a completely different state <laughs> yeah <laughs> my spouse is from a, a teeny tiny town in arkansas called conway um and oh. it is of the exact same style where if you also are from conway you know each other <laughs> it's yes. small enough where that is almost a guarantee <laughs> and so we, yep. we were we were very surprised to find out there's a conway new hampshire <laughs> oh. so we're waiting for the exact same occurrence of where are you from conway like, oh <laughs> which <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome cool so what other so, questions do you have for me 
I have two more things on the list, and I know one of them you were really excited to talk about, so let's get into the gorilla gardening first. Yes! I just think this is a fascinating concept, and I, of course, am all for, I'm sure it's apparent now that I have many, many opinions (laughs) about (laughs) ethics and things to help people, and I love the concept of creating food uh, for folks that other, like, for usually it's targeted for at homeless populations. I guess I should probably start mm. by explaining what guerrilla gardening is. So, listener, guerrilla gardening is the act of gardening on land that the gardeners do not have legal rights to cultivate. That is the basic concept of it. Now, this can mm-hmm. be taken in terms of somebody cultivating a flower garden to make a neighborhood seem nicer, raise the price value, and thus essentially enrich the people who live there. Um, if this is something that can be both used for good and for bad, so like say you're trying to gentrify a neighborhood, that is a sneaky way to go about it. Um, and then you can price people out of their homes. Or you can say like now that they can um, sell their home for more, you've essentially given them uh, a much higher value property. So there's a billion different ways of looking at it. One of the more common ones is um, planting food crops. So that homeless folks or folks that are constantly on the move, so like truckers who don't really have a whole lot of time to stop and go grocery shopping, for example, might be able to just pick an apple or a tomato or whatever and have some actual fresh produce that is available publicly in a city. Um, These are often targeted towards places like Manhattan, L.A., um, lots of California-based ones, it looked like when I was rereading through all this stuff. Um, And it's had some spread over in Europe as well. But the big pushback on the food crops and the um, aesthetic flowers come from two entirely different sources. And this is what I was curious to hear your um, idea of, uh, because it's, it's something like cultivating food crops and cultivating specific uh, like environments with, with your crops. It's not something that I know enough about um, to really state myself as for or against, but the, Mm -hmm. the legal argument against it would be that you, if you don't have any control over the quality of the crop that you're producing, you could potentially be distributing diseased apples or, um, you know, pulling in an invasive species of wasps or hornets that now is going to terrorize the local populace. (laughs) Essentially, you don't know what you're doing and the health and safety that you're violating is actually of the people who live there. Um, Mm -hmm. Same with the, like, the, or the idea that the, somebody planted, like, in a redwood somewhere that obviously uprooted everything around it. It was incredibly mm. destructive. Now, thankfully, the gorilla gardener, well, I guess, thankfully in quotes, the gorilla gardener's intention was to cause destruction. Um, I think they put it by, like, a towing parking lot or something. But the destruction was immense, and it made the land ultimately unusable. It was, they didn't find the person who did it, but it was still, like, it was clearly somebody had gotten like a redwood sapling and planted it. It wasn't something that could have happened by accident. So there's definitely some serious consequences that can come from this. And that's like the legal aspect of it. The other aspect is botanists saying you are introducing plants and uh, plant species outside of their native environments or altering this landscape in a way that you cannot predict. For example, there are uh, medians all over Boulder, Colorado, where I live, that are just overrun with prairie dogs, <laughs> and they are huh. protected species because they are they're endangered and they only live in prairie, which is, I'm sure, as you know, extremely extremely rare. Um, we've pretty mm-hmm. much destroyed prairie lands in the U.S., and um, so anywhere that prairie dogs make residence becomes protected ground. Now, say you grab one of those seed bombs that's full of wildflowers. Your intentions are good, but you've now caused the soil to loosen, which means that prairie dogs can't burrow, which means you have possibly endangered their species more. 
Mm-hmm. So the idea behind beautifying it or whatever might have been well-intentioned, but the consequence there could be quite severe. Mm-hmm. So my thought to you, or my question to you was, do you think this is something that could potentially be a responsible practice for the average everyday person? Or do you think that it's too risky? Like, what what would your takeaway of this be? Huh. So I <laughs> I was very interested in the, in the topic when you presented it to me. I had never heard of guerrilla uh, gardening before, and so I decided to do a bit of my own research on top of what you sent me. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a really interesting idea, and it's actually related to uh, something that we're actually working on, you know, in, in terms of like the ag issues addressing, you know, department. We're, we're trying to figure out ways to adapt agriculture to an, to an urban setting and almost like kind of right. blend the two um, because we're running into a risk now where, where urban development might actually take over all of the agricultural land over the next 30 years. Sure. And we really can't afford that because over the next 30 years, our population is going to go up by another 2 billion people. Sure. And we're going to have to double our, our food production, maybe even you know more than double it. And mm-hmm. that's going to be hard to do if you don't have a whole lot of land to do it. So sure. we're looking on ways to see if we can not only can, you know convert agriculture to you know adapt to the urban you know development but also find ways to get the urban dwellers to be more agriculturally conscious and and help you know uh, help welcome agriculture with open arms and okay. so that that requires a few different things to happen so in terms of the gorilla gardening um you know to you know to the point that you mentioned about the cons one of the primary issues that could come with this is let's just say somebody tries to grow some uh, you know, some some food that could be used you know, like in, in either in a local like food bank or, you know, for homeless people or, you know, even for oh, local lettuce. residents. That was not poison apples. Sorry. Lettuce was the example given because if you have heavy metals in the water, the lettuce could actually oh, be right. toxic. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. So that that is one of the potential hazards. But one of the hazards I was going to go with was, you know, let's just say you have somebody who's taking care of these crops and you want to be able to feed a population with them. If there's any you know, disease or pests, you can't spray it because mm. there are, uh, I, mean, I guess, it, I guess it would depend on the, like the size of the operation, but, uh, there are regulations on what pesticides you can use in urban areas and sure. what, you know, to what capacity you can use them without, you know, it becoming a hazard for those around you. And so, right. uh, so and basically you're running the risk. Who's like breaking the regulation law anyway, is going to go, right. you know, you're not my dad go buy the pesticide. And then that's now you've poisoned the whole town. <laughs> Like there actually right, might exactly. be reason behind it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So if there's, you know, and not, not to mention that, but there could be potential uh, pesticide residue left in the soil, which could then contaminate the water supply. And then you have issues with like, there's all kinds of factors that need to be considered here. So on the sure. con side, the cons can get really, really bad. Okay. Um, the pros can be good as long as they're handled in the right way. So like I mentioned, you know, agricultural, uh, you know, basically the merging of agriculture and, and urban and urban life is something that I think is going to happen eventually anyways. Sure. Um, so exper- experiments we can run to try to see how it could work are always beneficial, I think, as long as they're not done in a way they could potentially, you know, endanger anyone else. Keeping it small um, scale. Okay. That makes right. Sense. Yeah, and so there was actually a an, an attempt to work on a project called uh, Pegasus. Uh, it, it's supposed to take place in Chicago, mm-hmm. and they're supposed to build a hundred acre farm right smack dab in the middle of Chicago. Okay. And I don't know what the final status on it was. I don't think it ever got approved, but I think it was kind of something that was you know in development. Sure. And the idea behind it was to try to get you know inner city kids and like more you know urban you know urban developing uh, like especially like lower class you know urban developed sure. uh, like homes to basically volunteer their time and you know like their energy maybe even get paid for it to go to this this local you know urban farm and try to teach them about you know how agriculture works and you know where the food comes from and all that kind of stuff now 
it wouldn't be commercial you know it wouldn't be able to, to feed right. the entire city of, of chicago but that wasn't the idea it wasn't supposed to produce enough food to you know to be financially stable it was supposed to be educational and you know right. help expose them to agriculture program right than a, right a, like a, a subsidied program. right exactly okay. and and so with you know with that kind of purpose i think that there's a lot of potential for it so you know using okay. uh using gorilla gardens to you know for educational purposes i think it could be extremely useful using it to feed populations i think there's still some you know we're, we're going to need some time to kind of develop a way that, that could be done safely and effectively sure. that makes sense okay so that can kind of be and i know this is um i, I know i keep going back to politics i'm betraying my my roots as, a, as an attorney um sorry <laughs> <laughs> to the listeners who are trying to avoid no, it i promise fine. we'll keep it late um but this could like I, there's a huge disparity between rural and city dwellers in terms of shared culture shared communication mm-hmm. points and it has turned into an awful lot of hostility based off of like information deserts food deserts all sorts of stuff and just mm-hmm. flat out not understanding the what everybody else is doing and so like teaching other people what you know what organic means or what mm-hmm. uh, what actually means to be an agriculturalist i think that is absolutely one of the first things we need to do in order to be able to actually communicate and help each other um but that could almost be like a wink wink nudge nudge political action between the two yeah like saying right yes no exactly here's farmer john saying that you know if you just so happen to plant apple trees you might want to consider these species which i so happen to leave on my back porch unsupervised from tuesday (laughs) to 3 to 5 p.m exactly just saying (laughs) and these would be the repercussions these would be what you need to look out for the ph kid is also on the porch that i am not looking at right now like it could be a cute way to kind of combine those activist communities in a way that is Mm -hmm. still Okay, fascinating. That is, you'd have to, farmer yeah. John would have to be careful because <laughs> that would require publicly stating all sorts of fun stuff. But right. um, but still, that that could be a really cool way to build that conversation between two, I assume, very large groups of activists. Yes, no, absolutely, and that's that's something that I've been working on ways to figure out for a while. And, and you know, a lot of people in the agricultural advocacy you know area of things are are trying to figure out ways to get because, like you mentioned, you know. Consumers and agriculturalists, you know, or consumer producer, or you know, urban versus you know, rural. However you want to say it, mm-hmm. there's two sides here, and they're not communicating nearly as effectively as they need to be. Or at all and, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> or yeah, exactly. Or at all sometimes, and so that's kind of the purpose of like the ag communications department. You know, like what I do with the podcast, yeah. what a lot of you know, ag media people are trying to do, what ag teachers are trying to do, is to try to introduce both sides to each other you know it's not just bring agriculture to the urban cities but it's to try to bring the urban lifestyle to agriculture as well basically bridge the gap between the two and pretend like they were never separated because at one point they weren't and so that's something that i've you know been very passionate about and working really hard to try to figure out more effective ways to do that that's actually what inspired me to bring up bring out the whole argument of you know agriculture is in our movies and our video games and our tv shows to show everybody that like look both of you are necessary for for survival you know that's right. both sides are in everything you know and like that's technology right. is in agriculture now which is an urban thing that's right and john deere's agriculture <laughs> exactly stick, but he's there <laughs> <laughs> exactly and so like you know you, you can't get away from you know from agriculture because we we'll obviously all need to eat and you know and we need food right. you know uh, we need fiber we need everything right but you can't get away from urban development or technological development either because that's what makes society run and okay. so i think that you know any way we can improve the conversation and the relationship that's between those two is is a good you know that's a good way to go 
that is something that I'm I'm hugely I mean I've told you the the idea of the Faustian nonsense was a no compromise creators uh, network mm-hmm. like that that was my whole co- my whole passion with ethics was that like I don't have I don't see why we have to have a losing battle for either this is a cooperative right. endeavor um if we are saying like we well, have to side with one then you, i think you've already lost <laughs> um, <laughs> no exactly so please keep me in loop on that if you have any questions about that or ideas i'd be happy to help brainstorm stuff like that like i, I said i'm a notorious city slicker so you'll have to <laughs> herd me in the right <laughs> direction sometimes i'm sure but um that is something that i think is a hugely important um to be yeah. able to build that conversation in that community yeah, and I'm always looking for people to help with this, you know, with this mission because it is kind of a noble goal to try to, you know, to try to unite both both sides of the coin again. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but I've I've been working really closely with a lot of other ag podcasters and other ag media people on, you know, strategies. And a lot of what I've noticed is that, you know, their strategies are let's just talk to the wind and hope somebody finds it. Some of them <laughs> oh, no. are, are doing, which <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> to be <laughs> to their credit, that's actually how I started my podcast. For the first sure. two years of my podcast, I was literally just interviewing farmers. And guess who was finding the information? farmers <laughs> who don't really like, need it right they, they're living exactly it, sure. <laughs> exactly I'm so sure like it wasn't until the point <laughs> <laughs> right like i'm i'm doing something that not very many other ag podcasters or ag media people are doing which is having conversations with non-ag people and hearing their thoughts on all of this and so that's not to say that i'm you know some revolutionary in terms of how this stuff works but i think that <laughs> no, i've kind of figured out something different approaches make different games it's really fascinating well let's talk about that outside of the podcast too like i said i run a podcast network and half of what i do is help make podcasts have a broader reach so let me know what i can do to help uh ag podcasts and i'd be happy to yeah well we'll definitely go over that you know as, as time goes on i did have one more thing on my list if you still got time fire away the fear of farm animals. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it would make good entertainment. Fire away. What's, what's, what could I possibly <laughs> We, we got to end on a funny note. We got we to gotta <laughs> leave them laughing. Absolutely, right? What, the drones didn't do it for you? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So a few questions with this. First of all, where did it start? I have no idea. I remember seeing a sheep. I think at some point it was the one with like the the cross eyes that are just mm-hmm. horrifying. Um, <laughs> I remember I've always been very short. Um, even as a kid, I was like, you know, I didn't have that period of time where I was like, Ooh, I'm tall now. And then everybody surpassed me. Like it was always, I was always <laughs> the short kid. Um, and I remember looking up at a sheep and thinking, Oh no, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> and I think from that moment onward, I think it was maybe a petting zoo. And I was like, a kid and like, my mom was like, yeah, reach out, pet this nose. I was like, I'm, I don't want to do that. <laughs> i'm good right here thank you um <laughs> it was basically this just overwhelming sense of how much bigger and stronger these animals are and how absolutely incapable i was with reasoning with them like i couldn't mm. be like hey no it's cool i'm on your side like they're, it's a sheep they don't know what that means and i can't like wave my union flag right that's not meaningful either <laughs> so <laughs> i was just fully aware that it was something that was live and, and intelligent to some degree and huge and that was a problem for me <laughs> that's really it there wasn't like a tragic incident or anything i've never been like harassed or abused by farm animals <laughs> at least not to the extent that anybody would qualify as harassment i count 
cows following me as harassment. I hated it. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I did climb up to the roof of my friend's barn when they all followed me because I'm, I'm a ginger and I look very different and apparently cows are extremely curious so they saw this orange blob and they were like neat friend and i was like oh no not your friend and climbed to the roof of a barn and shrieked for help so that my friend went and herded them back into their pen um <laughs> i don't think i've ever made a oh, laugh harder than that it's like wow i knew you were you grew up in cities but like wow I'm like, listen, they're large and I'm very small. This is stressful. <laughs> but, um, oh, no. That's really it. That's all it boils down to is that they're big. <laughs> okay. You know, that's that's fair. Um, <laughs> so uh, a few things on that. You're, so you're not alone. You know, you're like I, I, I have met people before who have been intimidated by large, you know, large animals, but mostly, you know, by, mm -hmm. by cattle and horses. Those are kind of the two biggest, you know, mm -hmm. uh, aggressors. But um, so I grew up, you know, obviously riding horses because my sister, you know, she trains them. And so sure. I was kind of her test dummy. Um, and so <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I was. I wasn't I wouldn't say I was always necessarily afraid of horses, but I was always somewhat uncomfortable around them just because, you know, like 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 you said, they are very, very big and they're very strong. And, you know, they're that's, you know, it's a couple thousand pound animal like, you know, right. they don't have to do very much to kill you. Like, right. um, so I think that I can definitely sympathize on that front. I will say I went right. I went riding with my sister uh, this weekend for the first time in like two years and uh -huh. It was like the first time I've ridden a horse and felt really, really good, and like okay. I actually felt like I was like connecting with the horse and I wasn't scared anymore, which which was awesome. Um, <laughs> which she uses, you know, she uses horses for for therapy and that kind of stuff. Like she actually like helps like, um, you know, kids who struggle with like you know mental issues with you sure. know they, like she has she has them ride horses and it kind of helps them with that. So there's something therapeutic about working with animals. But um, what's interesting is you know you mentioned that that animal or uh, human behavior is kind of like you know one of one of the things you're really interested in. That's right. Um, kind of like, you know, the interactions between humans and how they interact with different, you know, groups and that kind of stuff and, you know, mm -hmm. how societies function together and, you know, the ethics of all of it and like all, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm a public speaker. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I coach public speaking and I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I have been involved in leadership for some time. So human behavior is something that really interests me too. So, you know, psychology, mm -hmm. body language, like all of it is just really, really intriguing to me. Mm -hmm you'd be surprised how much of it is linked to animals like yeah. a, a surprise that makes a surprising a lot of sense. yeah I, I know so that surprising it's mirrored in like cats and dogs and i was gonna say to discredit my own fear <laughs> i'm not at all <laughs> afraid of large cats and large dogs i actually trained tigers for a few years well you're oh now, wow i guess i know <laughs> so the tiger was fine <laughs> but i think it's because i can read like cat body language like it's nothing it's second language right. i grew up with cats I wonder if that's the big off-putting thing for me is that I have no clue what a horse is thinking at any given point in time, only that they are thinking and could kill me. <laughs> that's a bad combo. So, you know, and I wonder that's, that's a really, it. really good point because I, so like I said, I was really like, when I got into high school, I became really intrigued with uh, cattle behavior and okay. the body language of cattle. And so my sister can read, you know, the body language of a horse, like, you know, like reading a book, like she can right. just look at a horse and tell you exactly what they're thinking, you know, what they're going to do next. Like she can tell you everything about that horse. That horse it's is like she's reading the best in the stock market and this particular, yeah, <laughs> I figure, got it. Right. And, and not just that, she can tell you how the horses are interacting with each other. And so like, like you, like you can always like, you know, you know how there's, um, like there's this weird like people like assume that animals talk without talking like they sure. have like this weird like unspoken you know communication <laughs> yeah. that's 
that's basically what it is is it's all either body language or it's like hormones like those are like okay. the only two like communicate you know communication devices that animals have to, at their disposal and obviously like they make sounds too but sure. you know out in the out in the wild sounds are kind of something that they don't make as often because that's that's dangerous you know that alerts sure. others to, to their position so right a, a lot of their communication has to do with you know context clues and so when when it comes to you know interpreting their communication you can do the same thing, you know, it, and this goes for all animals. They all have different levels of communication. So obviously you said you can understand the body language of cats. Yeah. Um, dogs have their own body language. Obviously cattle have their own horses have their own, like every animal has their own body language and behavioral patterns that can tell you exactly how they're feeling. Sure. And so like, for example, I have a buddy who's a dairyman and he, um, like whenever he gets attacked by like animal rights activists, he always tells them like, look, look at my cows. Like you, I, I, I'll bring you out here to see my cows. You can see that they're laying down, chewing their cud. They're breathing really slowly. That means that they are content. They are as happy That's as they're so going cool. to get. And so like being able to break down the physiology of an animal can tell you a lot about what, how they're feeling about their situation. Sure. And so, you know, he, he was able to also, indicate good that, for your pal you know, inviting folks out. <laughs> that is a really good idea to actually show. Yeah. You're like, listen, you're, I'm happy that you're, you're protective of cows. Let me show you that they're okay. Like that's a really brilliant mm -hmm. response to that. Good for him. That was actually, I had the exact same response when he told me, I was, I was like, huh, that's a really, you know, that's Literally, kind of a bold move. But yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know if I would have been bold and I'd be like, oh, the hors d'oeuvres are on the porch, I'm behind the locked door. Like, you can <laughs> right. do what you want, <laughs> but <laughs> good for him. That's really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but like you know to you know to that point if you if you're able to pick up on like even the slightest thing so like i'm teaching my girlfriend right now about how to read body language with both humans and animals mm -hmm. um so i live in an apartment that's like literally right next door to my college mm -hmm. and we have the the beef barns right behind the, the college so we can i can literally walk there from my apartment it's like a 10 oh, minute walk nice. and i usually do you know that's kind of like my my little therapeutic walk for the day is to walk out to the beef barns and see cows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. And so I bring her out there, which, you know, she could really use because she grew up a city girl too. So she doesn't really <laughs> okay. get the ag exposure. Sure. But it's, you know, it really helps calm her down being out there. And so I, I bring her out there quite a bit to, you know, to see the animals. And I've been teaching her about the body language of the animals. So like every time, a, you know, a cow will like flick its head up or it'll swish its tail or it'll take a step. She'll ask me, what does that mean? I have to like interpret it for her. It's like I'm a translator. <laughs> That sounds it's familiar, like, yeah. I mean, wacky forest <laughs> army going, what does that mean? They're looking at me. Is that bad? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah but it's okay. funny you know because like their their communication is all very simplistic and you know it's, it's very easy to interpret as long as you know what you're looking for you know sure. like if if they shift their weight into one foot or another you can tell what direction they're going to move if they switch their tail versus if they don't that means they're irritated you know if they lift their head to you versus if they put it to the floor that means they're either you know if it's on the floor that means that they're um you know kind of warning you if it's in if it's in the air that means they're kind of watching you if it's at eye level then that means that they're pretty much on you know on your on your side they're your friend um That's you know like fascinating okay so like, like everything almost the polar means something. opposite of dogs then where like if they're all standing up tall like you should you should be a little bit more cautious <laughs> yes <laughs> okay interesting okay i so, wonder if that's also contributing to why i trained dogs for a while too um <laughs> uh guide dogs specifically uh that's i wonder if that's mm. why it's so alarming to me because it's so very much different than cat or right. dog body language and that it can even be t antithesis <laughs> so that i'll be so, like they're happy no not happy like, <laughs> okay got it <laughs> see and that's that's an interesting point because now i think about it dogs and cattle have almost complete opposite body languages 
Um, so okay. like, you know, like, like you mentioned, like, you know, if, if, if a dog keeps its head up then that, you know, that's kind of a, you know, that's a sign of like, you, you better watch out. Right. Or like, you know, right. if a dog is, is wagging its tail, it usually means it's a sign of happiness. If a, if a cow is wagging its tail, you run. Like, that is not a good thing. <laughs> okay. All right. I learned something today. And here I thought the, the, the prancing cattle in my head definitely were all wagging their tails. So I guess they were extremely upset. Now I know better. Okay. Yeah. So, so if, if an animal, and this goes for most livestock because they use their tails as ways of getting rid of flies. So that they're like, oh, you know, they're a switch. Okay. So if they're wagging, if their tail is moving, that typically means a sign of like irritation or annoyance because, you know, flies are annoying. So they right. only wag their tail when they're annoyed. So it's kind of like, um, like, I don't know how, you know, in terms of like human body language, um, like if you have your Tapping arms your crossed, foot. that's typically right. Yeah. That's, you know, it's, it's similar, something similar, like in human body language, you know, body language works as a two way street in your brain. So like if you, if your arms are crossed, then that means you're going to interpret the next thing somebody says as like, kind of like more negatively, you're, mm-hmm. you're going to be more closed off to it. But if you sure. force yourself to keep your arms open, you're naturally going to be more inclined to, to listen to what they say. Yep. And animals are the same kind of way. So, like, you know, if an animal is switching its tail, it's because it's annoyed because it's used to switching its tail when it's annoyed by flies. So it's kind of like a reverse, you know, it's, a, it's like a reverse psychology kind of thing. So okay. with, you know, with cattle, if they're, you know, if their nose is on the ground, they're switching their tail and they're stomping the ground, you better get out of their pen or else you're about <laughs> to get rammed into a fence. Right. Okay. Got it. Whereas, Whereas the, dog, if we, the you know, tail is swishing, the head is low, they're saying, I'm being submissive, pet me. Um, yes. I love you. <laughs> like, got it. Okay. Yes, exactly. So yeah, I just imagine it. like if you, if you ever interact with cattle again, just imagine just if a dog is dogs. doing this and it's a good thing, <laughs> then it's a bad thing right now. <laughs> Right, got it. Okay, so the anti-dog, got it. Okay, I can yes, work exactly. with that. <laughs> exactly. And you know, but yeah, it's, so I it's think... funny that that never occurred to me that like that it might be a, a matter of body language because I I spend a lot of my time defending cats because you know mm-hmm. there's everybody and their mom decides to be edgy at one point and say like oh cats are all mean or whatever and it usually just means that they don't actually listen to their dang cat <laughs> right. um, who has told you like five times stop or I will bite you and then they get bit and they're like how could you fluffy like well. <laughs> there's only so many ways what we can tell you to knock it off so right <laughs> okay yeah no exactly and i think that at the end of the day that's where a lot of you know stigma around agriculture particularly in the animal agriculture industry comes from is that people just you know there, there's a language barrier you know sure. and the ironic thing is even like on like the metaphorical larger scale you know between the farmer and the consumer there's sure. even a language barrier there which totally. causes miscommunication yeah. and often fear you know um absolutely so like, I mean- there's our organic trend again yeah like yep. <laughs> organic mm-hmm. grass no exactly sustainable or whatever yeah that's yeah you can't speak the same language it's awful hard to cooperate right so like you know your fear of large animals could be you know in in some part to their to their size which is very understandable but it could also be that you know they can pick up on your fear because of your body language and they can exert more of it onto you by using their body language that you just didn't know you were interpreting Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure me looking really fidgety and nervous is not exactly the most soothing thing in the world, especially if I'm already <laughs> no. bright orange. That's already alarming. So like, no, so, I and don't that's the, them at all. <laughs> that's the other interesting thing, too, is that uh, cattle are actually colorblind. They they can't oh, see no color kidding. super well. But yeah. I don't know what it was. Maybe I was just wearing polka dots or something. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So like their vision is kind of obscure because they're only supposed to be able to see enough to make, you know, to keep them alive. So they okay. can see like general shapes and stuff, but they can't see super super vivid details and they often can't see color because it's not a useful uh you know evolutionary resource for them that's so, wild okay because yeah. i guess i mean grass so, so, is grass is grass it's not like you're worried about poison grass so 
Right. That's... Well, they're also more reliant on their smell for that kind of thing, too. Right. That's why they have big noses. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> what? So if, okay. Yeah. So I if you think that. about it, you know, like, and like, you know how they always say, like, animals, like, have, like, a sixth sense for, you know, emotion. They can pick up on people's emotion really easily. Sure. I'm sure they can smell it. <laughs> Well, that that's part of it, but my theory as to why that happens is because humans are really bad at hiding their body language. That's very true. That is extremely <laughs> <So> like, true. <laughs> right, and if you think about it, you know the animals don't have verbal communication. They're in like their entire process of interpreting things is through reading your body language. So they're always looking for it. So if you do something without trying to hide it, they are going to tell it's there. That is a fascinating theory. I would love to test that. That is absolutely fascinating, especially I could get a bunch of my old attorney friends who have tried to master the art of changing your body language at whim <laughs> um, <laughs> and see if we can manage to communicate effectively. <laughs> because right. I wonder if there's also a, a miscommunication of like the head, the human's head is low, like, oh, they're they're mad. Like, no, they're just really nervous around you. <laughs> like, oh, yes. see if you could mimic no. to the alternate, alternate, like same with cats, yep. you want to... Um, like I, I've told people before, if a cat is continuously making eye contact with you and not blinking, they don't like you. <laughs> they think you're a threat, and they would like for you to leave. Um, but you know what's funny is that's, that's actually true in cattle too. I trust you. Oh really? No kidding. Yeah. If they don't, so they yeah. don't blink and they look at you, it's like, all right, I don't trust you. You're, you're well, shady. I don't want to miss anything yeah. that you do. Okay. So that's part of it. And if you look them back in the eye, that's a sign of a threat and they're going to charge you. That is fun fact. Don't do that with tigers or they will pee on you. That is how they respond to threats. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you see a tiger turning its backside toward you and lifting its tail, they can pee about like three to four meters away. Oh, wow. Yeah. So move to the side, not back. (laughs) Good to know. Well, that's that's interesting because if horses turn their backside to you, that's a sign of disrespect. Oh, no kidding. Okay. So yeah. They and tigers would get along great, aside from, you know, yeah. the carnivore prey thing. But, like, <laughs> <laughs> right. same thing. Well, what's like, funny is, you know, back you... to you, it's like, you're not going yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. A big thing that you learn in body language is that a lot of animals actually take after each other from body language. So, like, humans took a lot of their body language from dogs and from uh, other, like, primates. And so, like, there's... Uh-huh. You know, there's some that has to do with like, you know, they take some from cats, they take some from cattle, they take some from horses, but like a lot of their bilingual comes mostly from dogs and other primates. And so like with dogs, you know, obviously like if a, if two dogs are in a fight, one exposes his neck, that's a sign of like, hey, I give up, you know, you can, you can kill me right. if you want. And usually the one won't kill him. <laughs> it's not because he's a good right. dog, it's because he wants to show, hey, I didn't kill him, but maybe I will. So you better not mess with me. Right. And so I want you to live to tell about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So humans do that too. You know, humans will naturally expose their neck if they're trying to be submissive. Yeah. Tipping your head back and being like, oh, it's not what I meant. I'm backpedaling the literal sense of leading away. Yeah, that is true. Right. Yep, or if, or if they lower their head, that typically means that they're not confident in what they're going to say. If they raise their head, like they're looking down at you from above their nose, that means they're kind of trying to be condescending. Like right. there's a lot of, you know, similarities between like the animal kingdom's bio-language and human bio-language, and that's why animals can read us like a book and we have no idea what they're thinking. <laughs> I bet, yeah. All right, so maybe so. that's my that's my to-do list then is get good <laughs> at learning cow bo- and horse body language, um, which I'm sure will t- do a lot of trial and error. <laughs> but... <laughs> That, that'll be my yeah. to-do list uh, post-quarantine is go find me a cow that is very patient <laughs> and try there to you learn. Go. Hey, just, if you can find any local dairies or, or beef yeah, ranches, then Colorado. go ask them. And... I'm sure there's tons. Oh, there, there are <laughs> many. Yep. Yeah. Just look around and you know, don't be afraid. This is something I always tell people. Like, If you want to learn about agriculture, go find local farms and ask the farmer. More often than not, they'll say, okay, come on. I'll, I'll show you around. 
That is so cool. Okay, so that, it, that wouldn't be like, I, there's a farmer's market that comes into town on Saturday. Well, I assume it will come back <laughs> post-quarantine, but <laughs> would that be like an okay thing to ask a farmer of like, would you mind showing me? So I, I'm curious, is that a respectful thing to ask? Yeah, and just, you know, show them that you have a genuine interest, you know, yes. don't don't uh, make it seem as though, like, you want to expose them or anything, right. just like, hey, I had some questions, you <laughs> know, I've been learning scarf. a lot. Of... It's... <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, May, maybe leave the, the animal blood soaked, uh, you know, fur at home, uh, just kind of, like, show up and just say, like, hey, you know, I've, I've been learning a lot about agriculture, you know, and, like, maybe even mention some of the things that you've learned, you know, here today, and just say, sure. like, hey, I'm, I'm really curious about your operation, like, you know, I, I won't videotape anything, I just want to see, you know, I want to learn about your operation, and they'll, yeah, more I've often than not, they'll yeah, come on, I'll show you. Red flag too. That makes sense. Good for them. Then some. Yep. A, a lawyer friend has warned them accurately. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. No, there aren't there aren't many farms you can videotape on nowadays without some kind of permission or or you know signing a waiver or something. I'm sure having a very angry farmer on you and rightly so, really, because that's a really yep. rude thing to do. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Then I'll try that. Yeah. Um, I'll see if I can make some friends. I've I've wanted to go poke at um, beekeeping folks too, which I suppose is like the ultra hard mode of trying to learn. Body language. <laughs> Maybe I should start with cattle. <laughs> um, you'd be, you'd be surprised. Beekeeping apparently has its own body language thing that they like. I, I wouldn't I be able to understand that. it, but like I talked to a beekeeper. Like wasp keepers too, because apparently there are some wasps uh-huh. that produce honey, and like it, you can make friends because they recognize your face and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, no, I had a beekeeper on an episode a couple weeks back, and he was telling me about like all kinds of stuff about like, oh yeah, if the bees trust you, like if, if you get on the queen's good side, then the bees will trust you and they won't attack you. But if you squish one of them in front of them, then they'll all try to kill you, and it's like this oh whole thing. And I was like, oh, fair enough. Yeah, no, that is super fair. Like, if you just slaughtered one of my friends in front of me, I'd be like, okay, well, that's, I mean, that's not great. We're not on good terms now. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's super fair. Right. <laughs> All right. That's super yeah, valid. So, okay. Yeah. Well, thank so. you so much, Brendan. This has been so much fun. Um, I am yeah. happy to be a resource for, for you, for your uh, ag uh, podcast networks and stuff. If you guys have any questions or anything, feel free to reach out to Fasting and Nonsense. We're we're brand new and we're enthusiastic, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and hopefully we can help out. Um, awesome. And thanks for teaching me everything. I really enjoyed learning. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun to have you on. You had some really good questions. We had some good, uh, you know, some good laughs and some definitely some good conversation, which is always the kind of the, you know, the plan is to get, you know, if, if one of us learns something, then we've done something good. Right. And I promise I will send you weird fruit that I remember, too, so you can awesome. <laughs> go find it. And I'll send, I'll send you articles on happy cows. Yes, please. Thank you. I need to learn. <laughs> So before we close out, uh, if you if you if you'd like to, you can go ahead and plug anything you want to plug, any projects or anything you're working on that you want people to find you on. Oh gosh, sure. Um, so like I've mentioned a couple times, uh, Jack and I run Faustia Nonsense. You can find us at faustianonsense.com. We currently have. Um, one podcast that is live, Rank and Vile, which ranks all horror movies ever made from uh, Spooky Buds, which is the Air Buds Halloween film, <laughs> to like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the whole ordeal. And um, this is run by Quincy Rhodes and, uh, and Ryan, last name escapes me, shoot, I've been friends with him for like years. Well, <laughs> the, the whole point is that it's a, a humorous take and a ranking system that is based off of relativity. So what they'll do is they'll say, all right, is it better or worse than Alien? Is it better or worse than blah, blah, blah? And it'll work their way up the list. So it's a pretty non-conventional ranking um, Hmm. because sometimes you don't get to compare to the one that you wanted to compare to if it's pulled up randomly. Um, 
it also helps teach folks about what makes something a horror film. Like I mentioned Alien, um, Ryan staunchly insists that it is a horror film instead of just sci-fi and makes a pretty good argument for it. Um, huh. I learned a whole lot about horror as a genre because I was initially like, I don't know if I love the concept of just being scared as a hoffy um, <laughs> until they explained to me about the idea of catharsis through horror mm. films and being able to cope with difficult things. And this has ended up being really popular with folks during quarantine for reasons I'm sure you can imagine. Um, but Rankin Vile is currently live. The Lavender Tavern is going to be live uh, February 14th and it, the full first season will be out in one fell swoop. It is a fairy tale, adult fairy tales with a queer bent. So it has mm. like that moral of the day kind of vibe to it. And they're about 30 minutes a piece they're really good. We just finished wrapping uh, season one's recordings and Jonathan Cohen, the writer of them, really just did an incredible job. And uh, finally, we've got Jack of All Trades, which I spoiled a little bit with uh, Tulare. Um, <laughs> that will be out probably sometime in June. It is a full scale production with a sound effect, sound design, score, everything. So wow. take that with a grain of salt, June. <laughs> um, but um, all first season's all recorded and everything, or all just in post now. And then a Patreon exclusive uh, called The Idiot's Guide to Quitting Your Day Job, which is an audio journal by Jack and I about why we quit our day jobs to uh, found Faustian nonsense and how we're going to maintain it and make it possible for other people to do so as well nice yeah so come check us out awesome. yeah <laughs> and yeah for sure and you know if whenever i get the episode ready then i'll i'll ask you again you can send me any links that you want me to share i'll put those down in the description and and uh send people your way oh that's lovely thank you um and i'll, I'll do the <laughs> awesome. same we'll, yes. i'll post a vlog about it and send folks to talk ag to me it's a thus far <laughs> a fantastic experience awesome well I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you've had a good time and you're always welcome back on if you have more questions which i'm sure Absolutely. you will at some point <laughs> i'm sure yeah <laughs> see you already know me <laughs> <laughs> yeah so all right well awesome. thank you so well, yeah. much yeah thank you and you know thanks to all my listeners for tuning in if you guys have any questions for amy you can reach out to either her or me and we'll make sure to get those answered um but yeah so i think this was a, a fun episode and i hope to hear back from you soon and from all of you guys soon next week and don't forget if you ate today thank a farmer <laughs> well thank you then brendan <laughs> <laughs>